We live in trying times. You probably have never experienced what the Israelites experienced here, that unprovoked and unjustified another nation comes and attacks them. Uh, certainly we see examples of that in the histories of various nations as we look through these things, but it's not something I think we individually have experienced in our lifetimes. The sort of things that we do face, perhaps, in our world, in our country today, there is a growing and an intensifying opposition to God and his people simply for the fact that they hold to what God has said in his word. Um, and the irony of this is that it comes, the more that our society describes itself as tolerant and loving, the more the attacks upon Christianity come because Christianity holds out an exclusive and a convicting way of life and so that provokes this response from the world around us. And so when we face this, when we, when we can't deliver ourselves from unjustified attacks, verbal or otherwise, when we see the carrying out of justice in our world as an impossible task, you, you vote for someone you think is going to be a good judge and then they turn out to be corrupt, or, or you, you hope to see someone put in a position of authority and they turn out to not live up to your expectations, there are two general sinful responses that we tend to arrive at when we face increasing unprovoked attacks or when we fail to see justice done in our world. One is to despair. It doesn't matter what I do, so I'm just going to give up, quit trying, not going to pursue it anymore, it's not worth doing. The other equally wrong response is to rage, right? We get frustrated, we vent against people, we attack them back. And the problem with both of these sinful responses is they fail to take into account that God is the one who deals with both unprovoked attacks, the issue of deliverance, and uh, the fact that justice is not often done in our world. God is the one who can, in fact, set things right and carry out justice perfectly, and we'll see he will do that someday. But this morning, what I want you to see, and I think the thing that links these two sections of Exodus together, is in verse 12. Moses' hands were heavy in the context of the deliverance of God's people. And chapter 18, verse 18, the task is too heavy for you regarding the issue of justice. Both deliverance and justice are too heavy a task for any one of God's people to carry out on their own. God is the one who provides the strength. God is the one who ultimately will accomplish these things. First of all, we see that deliverance is too heavy a task for you alone. Unjustified attacks provoke, they require some sort of a response. Why do I say unjustified? Israel is traveling through the wilderness. Now, I suppose that there is perhaps a case to be made that the Amalekites felt like, well, there's this large group of people passing near us, they could be a threat to us, but the Israelites were not going toward the Amalekites. The Amalekites are in the southern part of the land. The Israelites are not coming up through the southern part of the land by the way of the Philistines. They're taking a, a much more uh, indirect route because God takes them through the Red Sea and around this way and then they come across the Jordan River from the, from the east side of the land of Canaan. So they're not in any way posing an immediate threat to the Amalekites and yet the Amalekites attack them. Why do I say it demands a response? Because this wasn't just an army of soldiers marching from one place to the other. There were women, there were children, and so when the Amalekites attack them, 
they're not just attacking men, they're attacking women and children, they're attacking the nation as a whole. This demands a response, this unprovoked attack. And so what is the response? The response is in Exodus 17, verse 9, choose some of our men, go out and fight the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? Well, they're descendants of Esau. We see this in Genesis 36, verses 12 and 16. They're described again later in the book of Numbers as being under God's judgment for this action that they take. And uh, they were, the people were supposed to fight against them when they came into the land of Canaan. And we'll see that that did not take place. Unjustified attacks demand a response, but man's strength runs out before deliverance is accomplished. So there's all this imagery that we keep seeing. Moses, the appointed representative, the staff, the sign of God's power and Moses' authority and all these sorts of things. We see this, and then a great miracle, right? We see these three elements repeated from early on in the book of Exodus, from when Moses first encounters God at the burning bush, and then through the plagues, and then through the deliverance at the Red Sea. And now we see it in connection with um, this attack. And so Moses goes out. The men are fighting. Moses is at the top of the hill. He has the staff of God in his hand, and the imagery is basically this. As long as Moses' hands are up in the air, they're winning. As soon as his hands go down, they're losing. And we say, well, you know, that, that's a superstitious sort of thing. The raising of hands should have nothing to do with anything of, of how the battle goes. But it's a sign of God's authority and God's presence with them. And there are people who argue, well, you know, Moses is 80. He's getting tired. Of course, he can't hold his hands up and all those sorts of things. Moses lived to be much older than this, right? And he remains, it says, vigorous until the end. And so it's not an issue of, well, Moses just got tired because he was really old. And, and that's not the point of this passage. The point is, any one of us, no matter how fit you are, you hold your arms up all day, you're going to get tired. You can't do it on your own. And so God's appointed leader, even Moses himself, needed helpers. And so God used helpers to support man's failing strength. Who are these helpers? Well, first of all, it was the stone, so they put it under him for him to sit on. And then Aaron, his brother, and then Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, and then they had victory. And so God provided these men to come alongside Moses and support him in this task to accomplish deliverance for his people. But what's the reality? And this is the important point. It's not ultimately about Moses and how tired he was and all those sorts of things. The important point is God alone can truly deliver his people. Why is it important that God be involved? Because this task of dealing with the unprovoked attack of the Amalekites was something that spanned generations. We see from this passage that it at least spans the generation from Moses to Joshua, who's going to take over after Moses. But it goes even further than that, because what do we find out? In the book of Judges, the people hadn't gotten rid of the Amalekites, despite Joshua's clear instructions to do so, despite Moses' instructions passed on to Joshua. Who is it that Saul's supposed to get rid of? It's the Amalekites. And that makes that passage make so much more sense. Why was God so angry with Saul when Saul doesn't attack the Amalekites and get rid of them like God said to do? Because God had made a promise by his, himself way back here in Exodus 17 and said, I will have war against them, I will destroy them. We'll get more later on as we continue to work through God's word, I'm sure, about this question of were the Israelites right in attacking the Canaanites? 
Because there are people who say, well, what the Israelites were doing was essentially genocide. They were wiping out this nation without any good cause and all of those sorts of things. Uh, certainly, there are those who, in the name of God, have gone and fought religious wars in the history of the world without justification and in a, an, under false pretenses that they were going to establish God's kingdom. I mean, the Crusades and all of those sorts of things. I don't think we have to pretend like those were okay. But God is sending the Israelites to execute his judgment on people who sacrificed their children, participated in gross immorality, and did all sorts of other perverse practices. So it's not like these were fine, upstanding citizens, and then the Israelites come along and attack them. These were idolaters and sinners of the worst kind, which, to be honest, all of us are, but God had given them this span of four generations while the Israelites are down in Egypt. Then they come back, they're going through the wilderness, and out of nowhere this nation comes and attacks them. And God says this is what's going to take place. So God has to be involved because this was a task that was not solved just by winning this one battle. It was a task that spanned generations. Furthermore, what was the point of God's deliverance? It wasn't just, yay, we won, that's the end, right? Look at the beginning of chapter 18. There's this discussion of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Look at verse 1. He heard of all that God had done. And so he comes bringing Moses' wife and her two sons. It seems what had happened was while Moses was leading the people out of Egypt initially, he sends his wife and sons back to live with his father-in-law. And now his father-in-law is bringing his family to meet Moses at this particular point here in the wilderness. Uh, verse 6 says, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses goes out to meet his father. Verse 7, bowed down, kissed him. They asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Notice this in verses 8 through 12. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, so Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, Jethro is arriving perhaps after this attack of the Amalekites, so he may not be aware of God's deliverance at that specific point yet, but he had heard about God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, and in connection with that, that seems to be the thing that brings him to a true and genuine faith in God. And so the point of God's deliverance is not simply so God's people get out of a hard spot. The point of God's deliverance is so that God's name is known not just among people who already believe in him, but among those that God wants to bring to faith in himself. And that seems to be what happens here with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And so, uh, Jethro probably knew something of God. I'm sure Moses probably said something to him in the time in the wilderness when he meets his wife and he's living there and he's tending his father's flocks. But now he has seen God's work mightily in the land of Egypt. His father-in-law has heard of that. I'm sure Moses and Aaron now tell him of what's just taken place in this battle against the Amalekites. 
and the seeing God's power that he is the one true God leads to the conversion of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. So what about us? Like I said, we don't have nations attacking us because we're God's chosen people on a journey through the wilderness going to the place where God wants us to go. Uh, The attacks we face are rarely, if ever, physical, and yet people can be attacked for no good reason. Can be mocked, can be ridiculed. You know, those are the sort of attacks that we tend to face today. And certainly, it ought not to be because we have put things that are more important than following Jesus as being the thing that people know us for. Let me give you some examples. Do we have a right to bear arms in our country? Yes. But if people only know that you are in favor of the fact that you get to carry a gun in our country, and that's the thing that's most important to you, then you have put the wrong thing as the most important thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't uphold our freedoms in this country. I'm not saying that we should just throw them away lightly, but whether or not we retain the freedoms that we have had in our country, we still belong to God. We are still followers of Jesus, and that's the thing people ought to know us for. So, when the Amalekites of our day oppose God's word and slander God's people simply because we believe what the Bible says, how do we respond? I said the wrong responses earlier were to despair this is a fight we can't win, or to rage, I've got to do it all myself. How did Jesus respond? Think about how it's described in 1 Peter 2.23. He did not revile back when he was reviled. So, someone makes fun of you because you say something about God and faith in God in person or on Facebook or wherever else. The wrong response is to go start attacking their character. You're an idiot, you're a pagan, you hate God. Even if those things may be true... Because it is foolish to oppose God. If you reject God, you are a pagan. And if you support certain things the Bible says are clearly wrong, then you are upholding things like murder and immorality and all of those sorts of things. But how do we approach that? I think we should not approach it by making personal attacks on those people. In, from one perspective, and this is not the despair side of things, it's just a practical reality, You arguing with someone who does not have the Spirit of God in their heart and trying to persuade them that you're right is rarely going to succeed. That doesn't mean we never say anything that's true, but, you know, some of the conversations we were having in our men's Bible study, sometimes it's far more effective for you to say positively, here's what I believe about God, than it is for you to go after everybody else and attack what they believe that's false. And this is a challenge. I will admit that it is very tempting to engage in those arguments and those conversations and you feel like you're accomplishing something, and then you realize you're not. When ought we to take action? Jesus said that anyone who led children, those with simple faith astray, that God's judgment would fall on them. It's better that a millstone, a heavy rock, be hung about their neck and they be thrown in the sea than that they lead these astray. So when do we have a responsibility to speak out and to intervene? I think when there is a a circumstance in which children are being taught babies aren't people, they're just clumps of tissue, and when people are being taught, you know, God's pattern for the family doesn't matter, it's not important at all, and when people are being taught, you can believe whatever you want, there's many ways to live, and they're all equally good. I think particularly when those who, like our children, are most vulnerable and susceptible to those lies are being, having them forced upon them 
by whatever means, uh, changes in local city ordinances, changes in the education system, changes in whatever venue it might be, we have a responsibility to oppose those sorts of agendas that are trying to lead particularly children who are more easily swayed than adults away from God and toward a system of belief that's completely opposed to God. I balance that by saying this. We can and may get to a place where it is illegal to speak the truth of what God has said and where all our efforts to uphold the freedoms that we have had in the past for religious worship and all those sorts of things fail, we still have a responsibility to hold to what God has said and bear the consequences regardless. And if we get to that point, again, we ought not to despair and think that God's purpose has failed because we are not looking at this in the short term, right? But that's often what we do. We're like, I've got to fix this thing now in this place, in my life, right? Speaking the gospel will not fix society. Why? Because that's not God's primary purpose in the proclamation of the gospel or in having given us his word. His primary goal is not take this, transform society, make a perfect heaven here on earth, right? Right? That's not the point. Here's the other thing that is a common attitude among unbelievers that we can sort of fall into the mindset of, and it is, I ought to be able to live my life in safety. Right? I ought to be able to live my life in safety. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about uh, being safe from disease or being safe from violent crime, although it touches on those things as well. I'm talking about being safe from ever having anyone oppose what I think or do or, or prefer, right? I've had conversations with friends who live a particular lifestyle and their goal is no one should be able to make me feel bad about this. No one should ever tell me that this is wrong. And if you do, then you're being hateful and horrible and, and that, shouldn't, that sort of free speech shouldn't be allowed. That's not our goal as Christians, that the reverse is true for us, that we're free to believe as Christians and no one should ever oppose us or say anything against us. Why? We ought to expect opposition. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And we've gone a long span in our country in which that has not been the case because there's been a general acceptance of Christian morality, more or less, although it's sort of, you know, been rapidly declining in the last 50 or so years. But up to this point, we haven't had to face that sort of opposition. So we've kind of felt safe, right? And now we don't feel safe because people are attacking Christianity and mocking it and ridiculing it more openly, and no one's stepping in to stop them. And all of these freedoms are beginning to be more eroded. And places are passing ordinances. Uh, California passed an ordinance that says hospitals can't say certain things that are true about the way God made people. And then more recently, they said... No one can say this, right? They passed a law that basically said anyone in sort of an official position that says, here's the way God made people, here's the way life is supposed to work on particular issues, if you believe that, then you're breaking the law and your free speech is restricted in that way. And you say, well, of course, that's, you know, that's way over there, that's a more progressive state. There are movements to do the same thing in our local communities. And my point in saying that is not to say that we throw all of our efforts in trying to stop all of those ordinance changes and law changes, because I think ultimately we're going to fail in that. My point is simply to say, 
We ought to proclaim the gospel. We ought to recognize opposition will come. We don't seek it out unnecessarily, but we're not shocked by it. Our goal is not to have a safe space where Christians are upheld and loved because this world is not our home, right? So, our goal is not to bring in God's kingdom because that's not a task we can accomplish in our own strength. God will bring in his kingdom when he's ready, right? We do preach the gospel. Our goal is not to feel safe because... We ought not feel safe in a place that is not our home, right? And this world is not our home. Furthermore, this is not a solo task. Even the proclamation of the gospel is not a solo task, right? It's easy for us in the context of our churches to adopt the attitude that, you know, the pastor is talking to people about Jesus, and I ought to be. Or that one guy who always gives testimonies about it in church, he's talking to people about Jesus, and he ought to be. This is a task for every single one of us who are part of this church. Just like Moses couldn't do the task of delivering God's people from the attack of the Amalekites, we can't do the task of delivering people from their sin, certainly apart from God's divine work, but also we can't do it if just one person is telling people about Jesus. So let me ask you this. Are your fellow church members' arms tired in the task of bearing forth the gospel because you are distracted or uninvolved. And there are many distractions, and there are many reasons for us to be uninvolved. And I'm not thinking of any one person in our church. I'm thinking this is a a dangerous tendency that all of us are pushed to, to be distracted by other things and to be involved in so many other things that we can't be involved in what's most important. Clearly, God is the one who calls out a people for himself. But like the task that God had of delivering the Israelites from the Amalekites, God's calling out a people for himself is a task that spans generations as well. And so the one error is to think, some people in the church are sharing the gospel, I don't need to. Another one is to think, well, all of these people who've come before us, they've faithfully done it. I don't need to be worry about me doing it. I don't need to worry about my children doing it. God's word will prevail even if our church does not live on. So that's not the goal I'm striving for, although I'd like to see it live on. My point is simply to say, if we don't pass on the urgency and responsibility of sharing the gospel to our children, to those who are younger than us in the church, that church in that one place will die out. God's plan will succeed. Who got rid of the Amalekites when Saul wouldn't? Samuel, right? Samuel carried out... God will raise up someone to accomplish his task, but wouldn't you rather it was you that was faithfully doing what God had called you to do, wouldn't you rather see our church press forward in fulfilling God's purpose? Closely related to the need for deliverance is the need for justice. Israel was freed from Egypt, but they hadn't yet arrived in the land, and there were all sorts of issues that were coming up, and this was something that needed to be dealt with in this process of their travels over to the land, and their, their deliverance was not fully complete. They hadn't arrived in the land There needed to be justice carried forth. Certainly there wasn't justice taking place in Egypt, right? They were oppressed, they were beaten, they were mistreated, all of those sorts of things. Now they come out in the wilderness, you have this huge group of people, there's going to be conflicts, there's going to be disputes, someone has to answer those. But we see from chapter 18 that justice is too heavy a task for you alone, even like deliverance is. Justice is important. Why do we say it's important? Moses sat to judge the people and they stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Moses and the people were both committed to making sure that this happened, right? They were bringing their disputes. Moses was sitting there all day long to try to work through those issues for them. And 
Uh, when explaining what he was doing, Moses said, why, why am I doing this? Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Important test, right? I don't think anyone would argue that this is unimportant. The issue was with regard to the way that he was going about it. And we want to immediately jump to this idea that, okay, you know what, we, Moses should need, just needed to take a business class, and he would have learned principles of delegation, and everything would have gone much more smoothly. The point of Exodus 18 is not primarily to teach us leadership principles, right? It's to teach us not that if you follow the right leadership principles, everything will work out. It ought to show us our inadequacy even when we are following all the right patterns and approaches and all the strategies, right? Because we still are not going to perfectly accomplish justice, although it is improved, as we see by the end of the chapter. Justice is not a solo task. Advice can come even from unlikely or unexpected sources. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said, the thing that you are doing is not good. I don't know what your relationship is to your father-in-law. Hopefully it's a good one if, if he's still living. Um, but if, um, if your father-in-law, whatever he is, came and, and stepped into this other organization that he was nothing a part of and just said, now here's the way you're supposed to do things. You might find that a little bit odd or you might be a little bit hesitant, right? Was Moses' father-in-law uniquely equipped to do this? I mean, some would argue because he was a priest in Midian that he was familiar with some sort of hierarchical structure and maybe he was adapting that advice and giving it to Moses. We really don't know any of that. That's just speculations that people have made, right? The point is, God can use pretty much anything or anyone to accomplish the goal that he's seeking to accomplish. I mean, the favorite one we like to go to is, well, if God can use Balaam's donkey, don't be surprised he can use you, right? I mean, that sort of idea, right? God can use anyone and everyone to accomplish what he is doing. And so we ought not to be as shocked that God is using Jethro, a Midianite, to give advice to Moses about the Israelites because God's going to keep doing those sorts of unexpected things in the history of Israel. Outsiders who follow God more fervently than some of his own people, those who were pagans that God converts and brings to be connected with him. I think that Jethro's advice was accepted in part because of his faith in God as expressed in verse 12. Why do I say faith in God? Because he offers the appropriate sacrifices before God, and he sits down and has a fellowship meal with the people, the leaders of Israel, as though he is one of them in terms of belief, even though not in ethnicity. So Jethro is qualified in the sense that he's an older, wiser man, and he's qualified in the sense that he is now a believer and has the best interest of this, pe this people at heart. When I say believer, a follower of God, not a Christian. Um, and so God uses him to bring this wisdom to Moses. I think he recognizes, and Moses recognizes, the core task needed to happen still, right? The core task for Moses was make known the statute of God and his laws. The thing that maybe Moses didn't need to do every single instance of was to judge between a man and his neighbor. Why? Because one man could not teach and judge every single case. He said, you will wear out. It's not good. 
your people and yourself and these people with you, the task is too heavy for you, you cannot do it alone. Why was he saying this? Because Moses is sitting there all day long, and the people are standing there all day long in this long line or this big gathering, waiting for their cases to be heard. You know what's probably not happening? There's probably parallels to like a secretary of state office, right? You don't get an appointment, you stand in line all day, you don't get the thing done that you need to go, especially if you go later in the day. And obviously that system's gotten better than it was 10 years ago or longer than when I first moved up to Michigan, but it's, it still has its flaws, right? Any human system where you have a limited number of people doing a huge number of tasks is going to be inefficient and have drawbacks. That seems to be what's happening here, just on a practical level. And so one man couldn't do these things by himself. And so look at Jethro's advice. Verse 21. Select able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. I don't want to draw too close a parallel between Paul's advice to Timothy in, uh, in 1 Timothy or his advice to Titus in the book of Titus and what's happening here. But I do think there's interesting parallels to be made. The church is not supposed to rise or fall on the skills, abilities, and, and fervency of the person who's put in charge of leading it or the people that are put in charge of leading it, right? All of us are supposed to be involved. There ought to be this raising up of people who show godly character to help accomplish the tasks that we're supposed to accomplish that is then transferred down through the generations, like from Moses to Joshua and so on and so forth, and from these leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens down to the ones who had come after them. But it wasn't just supposed to be a, um, like a parent to a child kind of thing, right? Because that's one of the flaws of many systems of justice or many systems of, of government. This person gets to rule and reign because they're the child of so-and-so. We look in the history of any country that's had a monarchy or emperors or whatever, often the person who's next in line is not really fit to lead a country. And this system that's described here is not perfect, right? Because you might have someone who's devoted to God at the top of the structure and people who are working at cross purposes below him, right? Think about Absalom. David is a man after God's own heart. Absalom says, you know what? He doesn't care about dealing with your issues of injustice. Come talk to me. I'll help you out. He leads the hearts of the people away toward himself. And so this emphasizes that even this solution, though a better solution, is not the ultimate solution, right? We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But Moses listens to the advice. They bear the burden with him. And there's one last thing I want to point out here. Advice is only wise when it aligns with God's purpose and revelation. Look, notice the tone that Jethro takes, for example, in verse 23. If you do this thing and God commands you, in other words, submit it to what God tells you. I'm certainly not trying to go over what God would say to you. Then you'll be able to endure and these people also will go to their place in peace. The concern was not primarily have a more efficient system simply for the sake of having a more efficient system. The concern was, God wanted Moses to lead the people to the land, and Jethro says, I want to see that you make it there and you haven't worn yourself out. God wanted the people to endure and not go off their own way because they were feeling that their issues of justice were not being addressed and all those things weren't being dealt with properly, and so they turn away. 
Jethro has those concerns in mind, just having a better, more efficient system. So ultimately, all these things have to be evaluated in light of what God had said. God didn't say no to this system. God didn't come along in the next chapter and say, don't do this. And so it seems that God gave permission to Moses, at least indirectly, to do this. And uh, obviously we have to be careful, because an argument from silence can be a dangerous argument, right? Just because God didn't say no doesn't always mean everything is okay. But I think in this case, it is, and especially given the parallels to the way God structures things in the church in the New Testament, I think there are, are good principles that are laid out here. Even as we saw with deliverance, God alone is the one who can deliver. God alone ultimately is the one who can carry out justice. What about today? God has granted some measure of responsibility to carry out justice to governments uh, in terms of punishing the evildoer and rewarding the good, to churches in terms of practicing church discipline, and to individuals in terms of the way they live their personal lives. Why do I say that? A passage like Micah 6.8, what does he require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I think that still applies to us today. But we all do this task imperfectly. Governments fail to carry out justice perfectly, whether that be the governments themselves, whether that be the military, whether that be police forces. There are imperfections because we are sinners and we are uh, those who don't follow God are, are even less able to follow these biblical principles because either they don't know them or maybe they don't care about them. And so we're going to get instances when justice is not carried out by governments and by representatives of governments. We're going to get examples where justice is not carried out in the context of churches because people are sinners in churches because sometimes we fail to, in the early stages of a problem, deal with it then so it doesn't blow up and be a huge thing later or we don't have the courage to deal with sin because we're worried about hurting people's feelings. Sometimes justice doesn't happen in the context of church discipline in churches. Sometimes justice doesn't happen on a personal level because we fail to pay attention to some of the uh, principles in Proverbs or other places and we think that something, or Ecclesiastes, and we think that something like a bribe starts to sound like an attractive offer or, or whatever else. And I'm not saying that that should be okay, I'm just saying that's the reality. Sometimes these things take place. These failures of justice, even today, whether it be in government or whether it be in churches or whether it be in our individual lives, should not, even as failures in deliverance, be things that drive us to despair or to rage. They have to drive us to prayer and say, Lord, come quickly, because the one who is going to accomplish perfect justice has not yet come to establish his kingdom. Listen to this verse, Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes forth a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. That's the deliverance. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the justice. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is the one who is coming to deliver his people by judging his enemies, to carry out perfect justice by subjugating the nation so that there is no longer any question of, you know, corrupt people halfway up the chain of command or the hierarchy of, of government or whatever else. That will no longer exist in Christ's kingdom because he will reign with perfect justice. He will deliver his people from their enemies. And so all of these failures in our world ought not push us to say, I need to fix this. Why can't I fix this? That ought to push us to say this. Jesus is coming and he's going to fix it. So we need to point people to him. And that's why I think it's dangerous for, dangerous for us to look at a passage like this and say, 
Well, this says if you get tired, you need support. Or if your leadership structure is not working, get a better leadership structure. That's not really the point. The point is not to say, well, if you just get the thing right, humanly speaking, it will work out okay, because even then it will eventually fail. The point is to, I think, as the whole point of the Old Testament is, is to keep pointing us toward Jesus and God's coming kingdom. So, when you are confronted with frustration because you are attacked for being a Christian, when you are unable to resolve the great injustices that are taking place in our world today, and society will latch onto one and ignore a bunch of other ones because we all tend to be fairly zeroed in on the one issue that is of concern to us at any particular moment. When we encounter these things, unjust attack, miscarriage of justice, don't think that the solution is for you to despair or to rage or even a middle ground that disregards God and goes it on your own that says, if I just get it right, then a human system can accomplish these things perfectly. Because it will not. Until the day when Jesus returns, we proclaim the gospel so that souls might be delivered. We trust in Christ despite unjustified attacks and despite the injustices of our world. We uphold those who are being taken advantage of but we recognize that our best efforts will not succeed in any way like the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And so if anything, looking at these passages, we ought not walk away from them and say, okay, now they've got the right system, so Israel, every, we should expect everything's going to go perfect for Israel. Why not? Because the perfect one hadn't yet come. And even from our perspective, the perfect one has not yet come to set up his kingdom, which will be a kingdom of deliverance from all attacks on his people and a kingdom of justice for all who are under his reign. That's what we ought to look forward to. That's what we ought to point people toward the hope of. And yes, take steps along the way to do what we can. Recognize that our hope is not tied to anything that we can accomplish here in this life it's tied to the gospel that can transform lives, not just for this life, but for the one to come. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. We live in a world in, where, in which the innocent are executed and the guilty live long lives. How then do we respond? Ecclesiastes says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Revelation says, There is coming one who will deal with these things far more completely, far more uh, certainly perfectly in a way that we are not able to do. Lord, help us to live rightly in the spheres of influence that you have given to us and not to abandon our responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that people will be delivered from sin, not to abandon our responsibility to, up, to expose and deal with injustices around us to the extent that we are able. But Lord, let, us, let our hope not be in ourselves, but let our hope be in Jesus because he is the one who can and will accomplish these things. And our 
success is tied to his victory, not our own accomplishments. Lord, if there are any here today who do not yet trust in you, maybe they are experiencing difficulty and they seek deliverance from it, I pray, Lord, that they might not look in the wrong places, but they would look to Jesus and his perfect sacrifice in our place and his uh, coming rule and reign. Lord, we can't just take Jesus and say, I want, I want the promises that he offers, but I don't want to obey him. We can't just take Jesus and say, I want the blessings that he gives, but I'm not willing to follow him even when it's hard. Lord, it's an all or nothing. We've got to take the persecution and the blessings. We've got to take the obedience and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that that would be a reality for all of us here in this room today. Lord, I pray that we might be stirred and encouraged by your word to go from here and not to fear, not to despair, not to rage, not to be self-sufficient, but Lord, to rest in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.